Section 32 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 32. Career of Charlemagne. A. D. 772-1814 by François P. G. Guizot, Part 1 In Charles, the son of Pepin, the Short, later known as Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, the Carlovingians saw the culminating glory of their line, while in French history the splendor of his name outshines that of all other rulers. It seemed an act of fate, that his brother and joint heir to the Frankish kingdom should die, and leave the monarchy wholly in his hands, for his genius was to prove equal to its field of action. The kingdom which Charlemagne inherited was great in extent, lying mainly between the Loire and the Rhine, including Alemannia and Burgundy, while his sphere of influence, to use the modern phrase, covered many provinces and districts over which his rule was wholly or in part acknowledged, Aquitaine, Bavaria, Brittany, Frisia, Thuringia, and others. To enlarge still further the bounds of his kingdom was the task to which the young monarch at once addressed himself, and upon which he entered with all the advantages of family prestige, a commanding and engaging personality, proven courage and skill in war, as well as talent and accomplishments in civil affairs. The central purpose of Charlemagne, to the service of which all his policies and his conduct were directed, was the maintenance of the Christian religion, as embodied in the Western Church, whose great champion he became, and in that character occupies his lofty place in the history of Europe and of the world. At this period, the two great powers in the Christian world were the Roman Pontiff and the Frankish King, and when, on Christmas Day, A.D. 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Emperor of the Romans, and in the Holy Roman Empire restored the Western Empire, extinct since 476. He welded church and state in what long proved to be indissoluble bonds, somewhat, it must be added, to the chagrin of the Byzantine emperors of the Eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople. This was an event, the significance of which only later times could learn to estimate. The Holy Roman Empire, henceforth, held a leading part in the world's affairs, the influence of which is still active in the survivals of its power among nations. Charlemagne served the Church and fulfilled his own purposes through the military subjugation of all whom he could overcome among the barbarians and heathens of his time and the powers which he gained as conqueror he exercised with equal ability and steadfastness of purpose, in his capacity as foremost secular ruler in the world. By the union of the Teutonic with the Roman interests, and of northern vigor with the culture of the south, it is considered by the historians of our own day that Charlemagne proved himself the beginner of a new era, in fact, as Bruce declares, of modern history itself. 
Gibbon has said that of all the heroes to whom the title of the great has been given, Charlemagne alone has retained it as a permanent addition to his name. The most judicious minds are sometimes led blindly by tradition and habit, rather than enlightened by reflection and experience. Pepin the Short committed at his death the same mistake that his father Charles Martel had committed. He divided his dominions between his two sons, Charles and Carloman, thus destroying again the unity of the Gallo-Frankish monarchy, which his father and he had been at so much pains to establish. But, just as had already happened in 746, through the abdication of Pepin's brother, events discharged the duty of repairing the mistake of men. After the death of Pepin, and notwithstanding that of Duke Wafer, insurrection broke out once more in Aquitaine, and the old Duke Hunald issued from his monastery in the island of Re to try and recover power and independence. Charles and Carloman marched against him, but on the march Carloman, who was jealous and thoughtless, fell out with his brother, and suddenly quitted the expedition, taking away his troops. Charles was obliged to continue it alone, which he did with complete success. At the end of this first campaign, Pepin's widow, the Queen Mother Bertha, reconciled her two sons. But an unexpected incident, the death of Carloman two years afterward in 771, re-established unity more surely than the reconciliation had re-established harmony. For although Carloman left sons, the grandees of his dominions, whether laic or ecclesiastical, assembled at Corbeny between Laon and Reims, and proclaimed in his stead his brother Charles, who thus became sole king of the Gallo-Franco-Germanic monarchy. And as ambition and manners had become less tinged with ferocity than they had been under the Merovingians, the sons of Carloman were not killed, or shorn, or even shut up in a monastery. They retired with their mother, Gerberge, to the court of Didier, king of the Lombards. King Charles, says Eginhard, took their departure patiently, regarding it as of no importance. Thus commenced the reign of Charlemagne. The original and dominant characteristic of the hero of this reign, that which won for him, and keeps for him after more than ten centuries the name of great, is the striking variety of his ambition, his faculties, and his deeds. Charlemagne aspired to and attained to every sort of greatness, military greatness, political greatness, and intellectual greatness. He was an able warrior, an energetic legislator, a hero of poetry. And he united, he displayed all these merits in a time of general and monotonous barbarism when, save in the church, the minds of men were dull and barren. Those men, few in number, who made themselves a name at that epoch, rallied round Charlemagne, and were developed under his patronage. To know him well and appreciate him justly, he must be examined under those various grand aspects, abroad and at home, in his wars and in his government. From 769 to 813, in Germany and Western and Northern Europe, Charlemagne conducted 31 campaigns against the Saxons, Frisians, Bavarians, Avars, Slavons, and Danes. In Italy, five against the Lombards. In Spain, Corsica, and Sardinia, 
twelve against the Arabs, two against the Greeks, and three in Gaul itself, against the Aquitanians and the Britons, in all fifty-three expeditions, among which those he undertook against the Saxons, the Lombards, and the Arabs were long and difficult wars. It were undesirable to recount them in detail, for the relation would be monotonous and useless, but it is obligatory to make fully known their causes, their characteristic incidents, and their results. Under the last Merovingian kings, the Saxons were, on the right bank of the Rhine, in frequent collision with the Franks, especially with the Austrasian Franks, whose territory they were continually threatening and often invading. Pepin the Short had more than once hurled them back far from the very uncertain frontiers of Germanic Austrasia, and, on becoming king, he dealt his blows still farther and entered in his turn Saxony itself. In spite of the Saxons' stout resistance, says Eginhard, he pierced through the points they had fortified to bar entrance into their country, and after having fought here and there, battles wherein fell many Saxons, he forced them to promise that they would submit to his rule, and that every year, to do him honor, they would send to the General Assembly of Franks a present of three hundred horses. When these conventions were once settled, he insisted, to ensure their performance, upon placing them under the guarantee of rights peculiar to the Saxons. Then he returned with his army to Gaul. Charlemagne did not confine himself to resuming his father's work. He before long changed its character and its scope. In 772, being left sole master of France after the death of his brother Carloman, he convoked at Worms the General Assembly of the Franks, and took, says Eginhard, the resolution of going and carrying war into Saxony. He invaded it without delay, laid it waste with fire and sword, made himself master of the fort of Eresburg, and threw down the idol that the Saxons called Irminsul. And in what place was this first victory of Charlemagne won? Near the sources of the Lippi, just where, more than seven centuries before, the German Arminius, Hermann, had destroyed the legions of Varus, and whither Germanicus had come to avenge the disaster of Varus. This ground belonged to Saxon territory, and this idol, called Irminsul, which was thrown down by Charlemagne, was probably a monument raised in honor of Arminius, Hermann's soile, or Hermann's pillar, whose name it called to mind. The patriotic and hereditary pride of the Saxons was passionately roused by this blow, and the following year, thinking to find in the absence of the king the most favorable opportunity, says Eginhard, they entered the lands of the Franks, laid them waste in their turn, and paying back outrage for outrage, set fire to the church, not long since built at Fritzlar by Boniface Martyr. From that time the question changed its aspect. It was no longer the repression of Saxon invasions of France, but the conquest of Saxony by the Franks, that was to be dealt with. It was between the Christianity of the Franks and the national paganism of the Saxons that the struggle was to take place. For thirty years such was its character. Charlemagne regarded the conquest of Saxony as indispensable, 
for putting a stop to the incursions of the Saxons, and the conversion of the Saxons to Christianity, as indispensable for assuring the conquest of Saxony. The Saxons were defending at one and the same time the independence of their country and the gods of their fathers. Here was wherewithal to stir up and foment on both sides the profoundest passions, and they burst forth on both sides with equal fury. Whithersoever Charlemagne penetrated, he built strong castles and churches, and at his departure left garrisons and missionaries. When he was gone, the Saxons returned, attacked the forts, and massacred the garrisons and the missionaries. At the commencement of the struggle, a priest of Anglo-Saxon origin, whom St. Willibrod, Bishop of Utrecht, had but lately consecrated, St. Liebwin, in fact, undertook to go and preach the Christian religion in the very heart of Saxony, on the banks of the Weser, amid the general assembly of the Saxons. What do ye, said he, cross in hand, the idols ye worship live not, neither do they perceive, they are the work of men's hands, they can do naught, either for themselves or for others. Wherefore the one God, good and just, having compassion on your errors, has sent me unto you, if ye put not away your iniquity, I foretell unto you a trouble that ye do not expect, and that the king of heaven has ordained aforetime. There shall come a prince, strong and wise and indefatigable, not from afar, but from nigh at hand, to fall upon you like a torrent, in order to soften your hard hearts and bow down your proud heads. At one rush he shall invade the country, he shall lay it waste with fire and sword, and carry away your wives and children into captivity. A thrill of rage ran through the assembly, and already many of those present had begun to cut, in the neighboring woods, stakes sharpened to a point to pierce the priest, when one of the chieftains named Buto cried aloud, Listen ye who are the most wise. There have often come unto us ambassadors from neighboring peoples, Northmen, Slavans, or Frisians. We have received them in peace, and when their messages had been heard, they have been sent away with a present. Here is an ambassador from a great god, and ye would slay him. Whether it were from sentiment or from prudence, the multitude was calmed, or, at any rate, restrained, and for this time the priest retired safe and sound. Just as the pious zeal of the missionaries was of service to Charlemagne, so did the power of Charlemagne support and sometimes preserve the missionaries. The mob, even in the midst of its passions, is not throughout or at all times inaccessible to fear. The Saxons were not one and the same nation, constantly united in one and the same assembly, and governed by a single chieftain. Three populations of the same race, distinguished by names borrowed from their geographical situation, just as had happened among the Franks in the case of the Austrasians and Neustrians, to wit Eastphalian or Eastern Saxons, Westphalian and Western, and Angrians, formed the Saxon confederation. And to them was often added a fourth people of the same origin closer to the Danes, and called North Albingians, inhabitants of the northern district of the Elbe. These four principal Saxon populations were subdivided into a large number of tribes, who had their own particular chieftains, 
and who often decided, each for itself, their conduct and their fate. Charlemagne, knowing how to profit by this want of cohesion and unity among his foes, attacked now one and now another of the large Saxon peoplets, or the small Saxon tribes, and dealt separately with each of them, according as he found them inclined to submission or resistance. After having, in four or five successive expeditions, gained victories and sustained checks, he thought himself sufficiently advanced in his conquest to put his relations with the Saxons to a grand trial. In 777, he resolved, says Egenhard, to go and hold, at the place called Paderborn, close to Saxony, the general assembly of this people. On his arrival he found there assembled the senate and people of this perfidious nation, who conformably to his orders had repaired thither, seeking to deceive him by a false show of submission and devotion. They earned their pardon, but on this condition, however, that if hereafter they broke their engagements, they would be deprived of country and liberty. A great number among them had themselves baptized on this occasion, but it was far from sincere intentions that they had testified a desire to become Christians. There had been absent from this great meeting a Saxon chieftain, called Witikind, son of Wernikind, king of the Saxons, at the north of the Elbe. He had espoused the sister of Siegfried, king of the Danes, and he was the friend of Radbod, king of the Frisians. A true chieftain at heart, as well as by descent, he was made to be the hero of the Saxons, just as, seven centuries before, the Cheruscan Hermann, Arminius, had been the hero of the Germans. Instead of repairing to Paderborn, Witikind had left Saxony, and taken refuge with his brother-in-law, the king of the Danes. Thence he encouraged his Saxon compatriots, some to persevere in the resistance, others to repent them of their show of submission. War began again, and Witikind hastened back to take part in it. In 778, the Saxons advanced as far as the Rhine, but not having been able to cross this river, says Egenhard, they set themselves to lay waste with fire and sword all the towns and all the villages, from the city of Dwitz, opposite Cologne, as far as the confluence of the Moselle. The churches as well as the houses were laid in ruins from top to bottom. The enemy, in his frenzy, spared neither age nor sex, wishing to show thereby that he had invaded the territory of the Franks, not for plunder, but for revenge. For three years the struggle continued, more confined in area, but more and more obstinate. Many of the Saxon tribes submitted, many Saxons were baptized, and Siegfried, king of the Danes, sent to Charlemagne a deputation, as if to treat for peace. Witikind had left Denmark, but he had gone across to her neighbors, the Norsemen, and thence, re-entering Saxony, he kindled there an insurrection as fierce as it was unexpected. In 782, two of Charlemagne's lieutenants were beaten on the banks of the Weser, and killed in the battle, together with four counts and twenty leaders, the noblest in the army. Indeed, the Franks were nearly all exterminated. At news of this disaster, says Egenhard, Charlemagne, without losing a moment, reassembled an army and set out for Saxony. He summoned into his presence all the chieftains of the Saxons, 
and demanded of them who had been the promoters of the revolt. All agreed in denouncing Wittikind as the author of this treason. But as they could not deliver him up, because immediately after his sudden attack he had taken refuge with the Norsemen, those who, at his instigation, had been accomplices in the crime, were placed, to the number of 4,500, into the hands of the king, and by his orders all had their heads cut off the same day, at a place called Verden, on the river Aller. After this deed of vengeance, the king retired to Theonville to pass the winter there. But the vengeance did not put an end to the war. For three years Charlemagne had to redouble his efforts to accomplish in Saxony, at the cost of Frankish as well as Saxon blood, his work of conquest and conversion. Saxony, he often repeated, must be Christianized or wiped out. At last, in 785, after several victories which seemed decisive, he went and settled down in his strong castle of Eresburg, whither he made his wife and children come, being resolved to remain there all the bad season, says Eginhard, and applying himself without cessation to scoring the country of the Saxons and wearing them out by his strong and indomitable determination. But determination did not blind him to prudence and policy. Having learned that Wittikind and Abio, another great Saxon chieftain, were abiding in the part of Saxony, situated on the other side of the Elbe, he sent to them Saxon envoys to prevail upon them to renounce their perfidy and come without hesitation and trust themselves to him. They, conscious of what they had attempted, dared not at first trust to the king's word, but having obtained from him the promise they desired of impunity, and besides the hostages they demanded as guarantee of their safety, and who were brought to them, on the king's behalf, by Amalvin, one of the officers of his court, they came with the said lord and presented themselves before the king in his palace of Attigny, Attigny sur Aine, whither Charlemagne had now returned, and there received baptism. Charlemagne did more than amnesty Wittikind. He named him Duke of Saxony, but without attaching to the title any right of sovereignty. Wittikind, on his side, did more than come to Attigny and get baptized there. He gave up the struggle, remained faithful to his new engagements, and led, they say, so Christian a life that some chronicles have placed him on the list of saints. He was killed in 807, in a battle against Gerald, Duke of Swabia, and his tomb is still to be seen at Ratisbonne. Several families of Germany hold him for their ancestor, and some French genealogists have, without solid ground, discovered in him the grandfather of Robert the Strong, great-grandfather of Hugh Capet. However that may be, after making peace with Wittkind, Charlemagne had still, for several years, many insurrections to repress and much rigor to exercise in Saxony, including the removal of certain Saxon peoplets out of the country, and the establishment of foreign colonists in the territories thus become vacant. But the Great War was an end, and Charlemagne might consider Saxony incorporated in his dominions. He had still, in Germany and all around, many enemies to fight and many campaigns to reopen. Even among the Germanic populations, 
which were regarded as reduced under the sway of the king of the Franks. Some, the Frisians and Saxons, as well as others, were continually agitating for the recovery of their independence. Farther off, towards the north, east, and south, people differing in origin and language, Avars, Huns, Slavons, Bulgarians, Danes, and Norsemen, were still pressing, or beginning to press, upon the frontiers of the Frankish dominion, for the purpose of either penetrating within, or settling at the threshold as powerful and formidable neighbors. Charlemagne had plenty to do, with the view at one time, of checking their incursions, and at another of destroying or hurling back, to a distance, their settlements, and he brought his usual vigor and perseverance to bear on this second struggle. But by the conquest of Saxony he had attained his direct national object, the great flood of population from east to west came, and broke against the Gallo-Franco-Germanic dominion as against an insurmountable rampart. This was not, however, Charlemagne's only great enterprise at this epoch, nor the only great struggle he had to maintain. While he was incessantly fighting in Germany, the work of policy commenced by his father Pepin in Italy called for his care and his exertions. The new king of the Lombards, Didier, and the new pope, Adrian I, had entered upon a new war, and Didier was besieging Rome, which was energetically defended by the pope and its inhabitants. In 773, Adrian invoked the aid of the king of the Franks, whom his envoys succeeded, not without difficulty, in finding at Theonville. Charlemagne could not abandon the grand position left him by his father as protector of the papacy and as patrician of Rome. The possessions, moreover, wrested by Didier from the Pope were exactly those which Pepin had won by conquest from King Astolphus and had presented to the papacy. Charlemagne was besides on his own account on bad terms with the king of the Lombards, whose daughter Desiree he had married, and afterwards repudiated and sent home to her father, in order to marry Hildegard, a Swabian by nation. Didier, in dudgeon, had given an asylum to Carloman's widow and sons, on whose intrigues Charlemagne kept a watchful eye. Being prudent and careful of appearances, even when he was preparing to strike a heavy blow, Charlemagne tried, by means of special envoys, to obtain from the king of the Lombards what the pope demanded. On Didier's refusal, he at once set to work, convoked the general meeting of the Franks at Geneva in the autumn of 773, gained them over, not without encountering some objections, to the projected Italian expedition, and forthwith commenced the campaign with two armies. One was to cross the Valais and descend upon Lombardy by Mount St. Bernard. Charlemagne in person led the other by Mount Senis. The Lombards at the outlet of the passes of the Alps offered a vigorous resistance, but when the second army had penetrated into Italy by Mount St. Bernard, Didier, threatened in his rear, retired precipitately, and driven from position to position, was obliged to go and shut himself up in Pavia, the strongest place in his kingdom, whither Charlemagne, having received on the march the submission of the principal counts, and nearly all the towns of Lombardy, came promptly to besiege him. 
to place textually before the reader a fragment of an old chronicle will serve better than any modern description to show the impression of admiration and fear produced upon his contemporaries by charlemagne his person and his power at the close of this ninth century a monk of the abbey of st gall in switzerland had collected direct from the mouth of one of charlemagne's warriors adelbert numerous stories of his campaigns and his life these stories are full of fabulous legends puerile anecdotes distorted reminiscences and chronological errors and they are written sometimes with a credulity and exaggeration of language which raise a smile but they reveal the state of men's minds and fancies within the circle of charlemagne's influence and at the sight of him this monk gives a naive account of charlemagne's arrival before pavia and of the king of the lombards disquietude at his approach didier had with him at that time one of the charlemagne's most famous comrades ogier the dane who fills a prominent place in the romances and epopeias relating to chivalry of that age ogier had quarrelled with his great chief and taken refuge with the king of the lombards it is probable that his danish origin and his relations with the king of the danes godfried for a long time an enemy of the franks had something to do with his misunderstanding with charlemagne however that may have been when didier and ogre for so the monk calls him heard that the dread monarch was coming they ascended a tower of vast height whence they could watch his arrival from afar off and from every quarter they saw first of all engines of war such as must have been necessary for the armies of darius or julius caesar is not charles asked didier of ogre with his great army but the other answered no the lombard seeing afterward an immense body of soldiery gathered from all quarters of the vast empire said to ogre certes charles advances in triumph in the midst of this strong no not yet he will not appear so soon was the answer what should we do then rejoined didier who began to be perturbed should he come accompanied by a larger band of warriors you will see what he is when he comes replied ogre but as to what will become of us i know nothing as they were thus parleying appeared the body of guards that knew no repose and at this sight the lombard overcome with dread cried this time it is surely charles no answered ogre not yet in their wake came the bishops the abbots the ordinaries of the chapels royal and the counts and then didier no longer able to bear the light of day or to face death cried out with groans let us descend and hide ourselves in the bowels of the earth far from the face and the fury of so terrible a foe trembling the while augur who knew by experience what were the power and might of charles and who had learned the lesson by long consuetude in better days then said when ye shall behold the crops shaking for fear in the fields and the gloomy po and the ticino overflowing the walls of the city with their waves blackened with steel iron then may ye think that charles is coming he had not ended these words when there began to be seen in the west as it were a black cloud raised by the northwest wind or by boreas which turned the brightest day into awful shadows but as the emperor drew nearer and nearer 
the gleam of arms caused to shine on the people shut up within the city a day more gloomy than any kind of night and then appeared charles himself the man of steel with his head encased in a helmet of steel his hands garnished with gauntlets of steel his heart of steel and his shoulders of marble protected by a cuirass of steel and his left hand armed with a lance of steel which he held aloft in the air for as to his right hand he kept it continually on the hilt of his invincible sword the outside of his thighs which the rest for their greater ease in mounting a horseback were wont to leave unshackled even by straps he wore encircled by plates of steel what shall i say concerning his boots all the army were wont to have them invariably of steel on his buckler there was naught to be seen but steel his horse was of the colour and of strength of steel all those who went before the monarch all those who marched at his side all those who followed after even the whole mass of the army had armour of the like sort so far as the means of each permitted the fields and the highways were covered with steel the points of steel reflected the rays of the sun and this steel so hard was borne by people with hearts still harder the flash of steel spread terror throughout the streets of the city what steel alack what steel such were the bewildered cries the citizens raised the firmness of manhood and of youth gave way at sight of the steel and the steel paralyzed the wisdom of greybeards that which i poor tale-teller numbling and toothless have attempted to depict in a long description augur perceived at one rapid glance and said to didier here is what ye have so anxiously sought and while uttering these words he fell down almost lifeless the monk of st gaul does king didier and his people wrong they showed more firmness and valour than he ascribes to them they resisted charlemagne obstinately and repulsed his first assault so well that he changed the siege into an investment and settled down before pavia as if making up his mind for a long operation his camp became a town he sent for queen hildegard and her court and he had a chapel built where he celebrated the festival of christmas but on the arrival of spring close upon the festival of easter seven hundred seventy four varied with the duration of the investment he left to his lieutenant the duty of keeping it up and attended by a numerous and brilliant following set off for rome whither the pope was urgently pressing him to come End of section thirty two